In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday of the season after Epiphany. And so we are still in that time of contemplating and reflecting upon studying the way that the Lord reveals himself to us. The way that he has revealed himself, the way that he continues even today to reveal himself, to make himself known, to manifest to uh, himself to the world. And one of the primary ways that the Lord reveals himself, that he makes himself known, is through his holy scripture. Uh, through the reading of it, through the hearing of it, through our learning it and inwardly digesting it, through our response to God's Word. The way that we respond to His Word is a way that we come into a deeper knowledge and relationship of the Lord. And so it's important that we know God's Word, that we study it, and that we know the history of salvation, that we know the history of our relationship with God's Word. So to that end, I'll ask you to buckle up your seatbelts and get with me on the I-15 of salvation history. So you'll remember that we start with Adam and Eve of the Garden of Eden, and they uh, uh, procreate and multiply until the earth is filled with people, but they turn into wickedness and sin, and the Lord uh, cleanses the earth through a flood. The only remaining people are Noah and his three sons and their wives. Noah's three sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem becomes the father of the Semitic peoples, and it's out of that group that Abram comes. Abram is living in the city of Ur, the Chaldees, that is present-day Iraq, near Baghdad. And uh, the Lord tells Abram, he uh, tells him that he is going to bless him, and that he is to go uh, to what we call the Promised Land. And Abram is the father of faith. That means that God told him to do something, and Abram did it. You see how complex faith is? The Lord told him to do it, and he did it. So Abram follows the path of what we call the Fertile Crescent. He goes up into present-day Syria. He goes down into present-day Israel to the Holy Land. Abram has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and the Lord renames Jacob Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And you remember that the 11th son is Joseph who becomes a prophet and is blessed by God uh, through circumstance to go into Egypt and to make provision for Israel and his sons. So they follow Joseph down into Egypt where these 70-some people multiply and become a great nation of hundreds of thousands of people. And they are so multitudinous and they're so blessed that uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt becomes afraid of them and begins to oppress them and put them into slavery. The Lord frees them from slavery through his prophet Moses. The prophet Moses is risen up and along with his helper Joshua leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years and finally Joseph uh, Moses goes to the edge of the promised land. Now, through that time of wandering in the wilderness, the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and he reveals through his Holy Spirit his word. He gives him the history of Genesis, and he gives him all the the law that we call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. So the people enter into the Promised Land through the scribes of Moses with the law in their hands. Joshua leads them in battle, and they begin a season of several hundred years where they're led by judges. These judges uh, are... Um, weighing over the nation of Israel, some good and some maybe not so good. And so the people cry out because of the oppression of the surrounding peoples for a king. 
and the season of the kings appears. Now, I like big round numbers. So Abram is about 2000 BC. Moses is about 1500 BC. At about 1000 BC comes the season of the judges, of the kings, excuse me. And we get three kings. We get Saul, and then David, and David's son Solomon. This is the time of the United Kingdom. These three kings are ruling over the entire kingdom of Israel, of all 12 tribes. Unfortunately, Solomon falls into sin, and even more so does his son Rehoboam, who it turns out is a fool. Because of Rehoboam's foolishness, there's a civil war that begins. Jeroboam in the north is uh, an Ephraimite, and he leads the nation, or the kingdom of Israel in the north, away from the kingdom of Judah in the south. And through that civil war, they become weak. They start to turn to the pagan gods of the surrounding area, and the prophets rise up, and the prophets begin to warn the people, because of their foolishness and their falling to pagans, that they're going to lose this kingdom. They're going to lose their promise of ruling themselves in the promised land and their season of God's reign. So the prophets uh, have this whole season from about 1000 BC until finally God's word is fulfilled in about 580 BC when the kingdom of uh, Judah in the south is finally taken over by the Babylonians. They come in and they uh, conquer Judah and they take the people captive, those that are uh, of a ruling class. Now they're there for 70 years, from about 580 to about 510, and when the Lord finally allows some of the ruling class to return, the job they have is to reestablish worship in Jerusalem, to rebuild the city walls, and to reestablish the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So they go about that, and that's where we are today in the reading from Nehemiah. We are at that period in about 430 BC, where they are reestablishing worship in Jerusalem. You can see that uh, the way that this starts is uh, that the people call to Ezra and they tell him, if you look in Ezra chapter 8 verse 1, the people gather as one man, so they gather unified. This is very important. The people are all together in unity and they tell Ezra to bring the book of the law. Now the law had been rediscovered, the books had been rediscovered, and this is, to me, such a powerful, momentous period in salvation history that we need to take a moment and realize exactly what's happened. Sometimes when we think of miracles in the Old Testament, we think of the nation of Israel passing through the Red Sea, or we think of the man in the wilderness. This is a miracle that is sizable uh, to me and as important as any of those, if not more so. Do you realize that when they go back to Jerusalem, there is probably only one copy of the Law and the Prophets? And it's in the temple which had been desecrated and destroyed? In their rebuilding of the temple, they find the scriptures in that closet in which it was kept, and they bring it out and say, look what we found? Can you imagine this period of history where the people of God did not know his word, did not hear it, and suddenly they find it and they tell the priest, go and read the word to us and make its meaning known to us? This is a powerful thing. And you'll read that the people, as one person in their unity, tell the priest to read it, and then they move in unity. Do you see how they stand together and they sit together, how they move together as one body? 
This is how we, we, we become one group is when we move together, when we stand and we sit together, when we act and we speak together as one group, which is what we do in liturgy, right? We stand and we sit together, we sing and we read together. We do this as one body together. That is how we act as one man. And what's also notable is that they're doing it at the city gates. See, what Nehemiah was doing as governor was he was reestablishing the city walls and he was making it safe and they were rebuilding these walls that had been torn down and the gates were being reestablished. And not only is this the first time in many generations that the word of God has been read and heard, but it's the first time that it's been read and heard outside of the temple precincts. Until this point when the word of God was read, it was always read in the tabernacle and in the precincts of the tabernacle within the confines of that space of worship. But now they're reading the word of God on a platform in the city gates in the public square. This is an incredible movement of God's word from the inside of the temple precincts out into the city, into the open air where all could hear it be read. Men and women, young and old, poor and rich, all together, focused upon God's word and hearing it and making it understood. And when they hear it and they understand it, they respond again as one man and they cry out in shame and sorrow because they recognize, they're convicted that God has told them to do something and not only have they not done it, but they've done in many cases the opposite. And the priests tell them, this is not a time of mourning. This is a time of rejoicing because our strength, which we sorely need at this time of destruction and renewal, our strength is in the joy of God. When we experience God's joy, we become strong. So this now brings us to the place where we start to understand the beginning of the synagogue system. Because the people of God never completely come back to the promised land. From the time of the Babylonian exile until the time of Jesus, Jews are in diaspora all over the known world. They remain and live in Egypt. They remain and live in Babylon and Chalcedonia. They remain and live along North Africa and into Europe and what we now call Turkey. They're all over the world. So at the time of Jesus, we read about people from all over the known world coming on pilgrimage for celebration of Pentecost. Do you remember that? Where all these people come together? These are Jews. How did they know the law? How did they know the word? It was because scribes had been going to the city of Jerusalem once the law is discovered and they had been making copies of the law and the prophets and an incredible dispersion of God's word and they had been keeping them in places that we call synagogues. These were big square stone buildings so that they would be safe places for uh, you know, flooding and from fire to keep the scriptures safe. This is their primary function. So a synagogue would have a big closet where all the scrolls of the law and the prophets would be kept. There would be staggered block seats where men and women could gather in a big square and they could hear the word of God read. And a smaller building would be outside where there would be running water where they could purify themselves and make themselves clean to come in to hear God's word. Does that sound familiar? A place 
set aside for the keeping of God's word, a place set aside at the entrance for washing and making clean, a place set aside for washing and made clean by the blood of the Lamb, for the celebration of the Passover feast. So this synagogue system where the people could be cleansed and hear God's word and respond is now in full effect at the time of Jesus and it's even up in Nazareth which had been historically part of that northern kingdom of Israel. And Jesus' custom, that means his habit, his way of living was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This of course is Saturday, the seventh day of the week when the Jews would gather and worship. We, of course, for another time, come together on Sundays because we are here to celebrate the resurrection and the gift of God's body and blood. So that's why we meet on Sundays. But it's his Jesus' custom that he goes to the synagogue and is part of that reading of God's word. If Jesus needs to follow habits and customs, how much more do you and I? need the regularity of daily reading and hearing God's word and participating in the gathering and worship of his people. It's essential that we as one group and family come together. So Jesus does that and they hand him the prophet Isaiah and Jesus is the word of God. He is God incarnate. He's the one that spoke to Isaiah. There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. There is one God of both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation, who has spoken to his people. Jesus is that word. He is that God that has spoken to his people. And so he unrolls the, the text of Isaiah and he says, this is what I promised and this is what I have accomplished. I told you I was going to do it and I did it. And that is the word of God from beginning to end. He tells his people what's he, what he's going to do and that he is faithful in accomplishing it. And so Jesus confirms that it has been accomplished. The day of the Lord, the day of liberty, the year of the Lord is the year of Christ's birth and his establishment of his kingdom. He establishes his kingdom which will have no end and he invites us to be citizens to participate in that kingdom. What does that mean to live in a kingdom, to live in a nation? To be a nation, to be a group of people, we have to have a shared culture. We have to have a shared language. We have to have a shared way of living. This is like being a family, right? If I tell you that I have a family, that I have a wife and children, but I live in another town and I eat in a different table and I do different things, you're going to say, that's not marriage, right? If you say that you're a member of a nation, that you're a member of a group of people, of a culture, you share that language, you eat that food, you speak in that way, you act in that way, right? We, we take on the habits of that nation. If we're going to be members of the nation, the kingdom of God, we have to take on the ways and customs of the kingdom of God. We have to become members of that one body. And this is what St. Paul is telling the people of Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And when you first read it, you might think, why, why is he having to tell them this? Right? 
It seems on the surface so obvious until you spend a little bit of time with people and realize that people want to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. They want to be independent. They don't want to be part of the group. They want to make themselves stand out and be different. And there's no difference between the time of St. Paul or Genesis to the time of today. right? And what is St. Paul having to do? He's having to say, if we're going to be one body, if we have one baptism, if we have one cup, if we have one faith, then that means that we get together as one body and we uphold every member of that body I think the worst things that I have ever heard in the church among the worst things is when somebody says Father Howard your church this is not my church this is God's church and we are all members of that one body and to say that preaching is more important than cleaning the toilets, is more important than counting the money, is more important than dusting, is more important than handing out bulletins, is more important than singing and leading worship, is ridiculous. And it undermines everybody's ministry. It undermines everybody's ministry. Every member of this church has a role to play. And when we play it, we all become stronger. When we minimize it, or we exclude it, or we don't participate, and we don't fulfill it, we all become weaker. So when we encourage and we build each other up to do the ministry that God has given us to do, we become one body, and we become strong. He says that the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. The weaker parts are indispensable. And that the members care and have the same care for one another. And 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to suffer together? Because the only way that we're able to honor and rejoice one another, to rejoice together, is to suffer together. So if we desire to honor and to rejoice together, we have to be willing to suffer together, to worship together, to work together. Ezra couldn't have preached and read God's word if Nehemiah hadn't gathered the people and secured the wall and the gates and built the wooden platform. And if Ezra hadn't been willing to read God's word, Nehemiah's work would have been for naught. And when we hear God's word read, when we all work together and we all call out for God's word to be read and to be understood, and we participate in that, we participate in the celebration of an even greater miracle, which is the word of God is here with us today. That thousands and thousands of copies were made available of all the scriptures to that first generation of Christians. Do you realize that the greatest proliferation of God's word was in the first century? Some 20,000 copies of the New Testament were made available all across the ancient world at a time when there were maybe nine copies of, uh, of the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, when there were maybe a dozen copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars. A handful of copies of these great works while there were tens of thousands of copies of the scripture all across the known world. 
And to think that in that miracle today that there is any Christian that gives up the reading of their Bible for one day. Do we celebrate that? Do we celebrate the miracle of God's word and him making himself known to us by the reading and the discovery and the cherishing of his word that we become one people and one flesh? That we recognize all the role of each of us to play? That we recognize that we are in great need, in great need of God's help and his mercy? And that when we recognize that, and we recognize his faithfulness, we recognize the hand that has brought us to this day, that we are able to rejoice and have joy. And when we do, when we do, we are in God's strength. His strength is in his joy. May we have his strength and his joy in our hearts this day and forevermore.